0: Welcome to From Florida, where you'll learn how minds are connecting, great ideas are colliding, and groundbreaking innovation is becoming a reality because of the University of Florida. I'm your host, Nikki Brown, and today we're talking about hurricanes. Experts predicted that the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season would have above-average tropical storm activity, and they were right. There have been 20 named storms as of October 11, and we won't reach the end of what is the typical hurricane season until November 30. This season's storms have resulted in damages collectively estimated at more than $70 billion. On top of that, dozens of people have lost their lives during flood surges and other storm-related events. This loss of life and property makes the work of the University of Florida researcher, who is joining us today, incredibly vital. Forrest Masters is a Professor of Civil and Coastal Engineering in the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. He works in the college's School of Sustainable Infrastructure and Environment and is also the college's Associate Dean for Research and Facilities. In addition to his work at UF, Forrest serves on the board of the Federal Alliance for Safe Homes. Forrest has received more than 50 grants from state, federal and private organisations to support his work, which is focused on developing a deeper understanding of hurricane behaviour and how to better design structures to withstand the increasing ferocity and frequency of these storms. Forrest, it's a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Good morning. Really great to be here.
0: So as a starting point, I'd love to learn more about what made you interested in hurricanes in the first place.
1: For me, it began as an undergraduate student at the university. I was in a structural engineering course and the professor came to me and said, do you want to chase storms? And when you're 20 years old, there's only one answer to that question. And uh, subsequently, I got involved in an undergraduate research program here. And that's when when I really began to fall in love with the study of tropical cyclones. And from there, you know, I built a career, Um, eventually became a professor. studying both the uh, meteorological effects of these events, but also studying how buildings respond under extreme winds and wind-driven rain conditions.
0: So you've conducted field experiments in nearly 40 named storms, several of them Category 4. What's it like to chase a hurricane?
1: Well, certainly it's not as sensational as what uh, Hollywood uh show you. There's a lot of hurry up and wait, honestly, and a lot of driving. Uh, when we leave the university, we're bringing a lot of equipment. We have a convoy of vehicles, large trucks trailing, um, you know, portable weather stations that get deployed in the path of the storm and hauling other types of equipment. So ultimately, you know, we're bringing the lab to the hurricane. You know, as deployments typically go, (laughs) I'd say most of the work actually happens in the lead up to the event. There's just a lot of planning and preparation. But once we hit the road, uh, we stay on the road. And so generally, all of our trucks, we have 100-gallon diesel reserves, (laughs) so we don't have to do a lot of stopping. You know, we keep moving. We move to the site. We do a lot of coordination on the road with local officials, you know, to get permissions to go into different places. There's a lot of communication with uh, meteorologists and other people that are keeping uh, close tabs on the storm to identify the right place to be. But when we actually get there, it's it's relatively quick. We have these six thousand pound, you know, rather stations that when they're fully deployed are about 33 feet in the air you know, we've done this now, you know, for almost 20 years, or over 20 years. So, we've a lot of experience putting these out. So, that, you know, that takes on the order of about an hour to put a put one up. You know, we move around the area. We put these in strategic locations. We're often coordinating with other university teams that are in the field. Uh, for example, uh, we have colleagues at, at Illinois and um, at Texas Tech in uh, Oklahoma who bring, and then uh, University of Alabama at Huntsville, who bring portable Doppler radar systems. And we try to, you know, co-deploy so that You know, as they're surveilling above or taking measurements below, so there's just a lot of coordination, and um, you know, we get out there. But you know, I don't think any, you know, I don't think our heart rates get over our, you know, 100 beats per minute or anything like that. It's a very intentional uh, process, and you know, this is the great thing about doing it today. The amount of information I have at my fingertips uh, is exceptional. So I, I really have a great idea of what's going on. You know, down to maybe the 15 minute increment about um, weather conditions so you know to get us in the right place you know get us in the right place at the right time so i hope i didn't dash any dreams about uh, for anybody that's listening about how exciting um this is to you know to go in the field it is quite exciting but uh, at the end of the day um it's work and it's professional work you know that's that's how it's treated we're very safety conscious and we spend a lot of time making sure that you know, we have the best information to make sure that we're making the, the right decisions. You know, We're trained to be highly analytical, to respond to changing situations. So this is a perfect environment to put those skills to test. There's a lot of improvisation involved because you don't know exactly where you need to be and by when you need to be there. The situation is very fluid. It's a wonderful opportunity to work with your colleagues and particularly to bring students in the field. In my experience, it brings out the best of them. Uh, they almost always, um, after leaving their first storm, come out a, you know, a different person, someone who's more prepared for their professional future and someone who's more in touch with the issues that ultimately drive all the engineering work that's being done to protect society from these storms.
0: I understand, though, that we've become a lot better at tracking hurricanes, but with all of the science and technology we have at our disposal, why aren't we better at predicting the changes in the strength of hurricanes?
1: Predicting the intensity of a storm, uh, it's a very tricky business. Uh, storms, uh, when they're moving across the Atlantic and eventually they recurve and uh, they strike the U.S., uh, as, they, as they're as they moving towards the shoreline, typically they're encountering a lot of new conditions. I mean, the, the presence of land, for example, cuts off the supply of moisture and heat. Uh, we also see dry air becoming trained in the storm, among other factors. And so th- the reality is when a storm's over the water, often we know more about it than we know about it when it's actually making landfall. Um, it's the period of sort of greatest uncertainty because of those those changing conditions. And that's in large part what motivates us to go out in the field and take the type of measurements we do is really to create you know both situational awareness about the overall uh, storm intensity, but also to collect data that will be used for many generations from now to improve those models. So, you know, eventually we hope we can help put ourselves out of the storm chasing business, right, by having uh, better and more actionable data uh, to improve modeling.
0: So we, we hear about modifying clouds with seeding. Why can't we modify hurricanes so they just dissipate or become less powerful?
1: The topic of weather modification has existed for a long time, and there are notable projects that looked at all possibilities to do this, including a a very large one called Project Storm Fury, which uh, was done in the last half of the last century. And generally, you know, the, the biggest problem with modifying a storm's intensity is simply the sheer amount of energy in a storm. You know, these large events can have, you know, more than 100 terajoules of energy, it's not straightforward. Uh, there's, there isn't a magic bullet here to kill a hurricane. So while it may be true that some of these technologies can be deployed and can ultimately reduce intensity in certain parts of the storm, uh, when you're talking about a storm that spans hundreds of square miles, uh, it's not a trivial thing to do. And also, there are unintended consequences of you know modifying the environment that have to that have to be dealt with. So you know, I wouldn't rule out and. At some point in the future of humankind, we don't figure this problem out. But for the time being, at least, uh, it's a very complicated problem. And we have other areas, certainly, where we can make a difference in terms of, you know, for example, improving you know, our, our building codes and standards and our design practices. And it's also just you know, handling the flow of people <laughs> during these events through you know, evacuation and that type of thing um, to give us a more direct path to ultimately reducing the impact of the storm.
0: So the data you collect when you are chasing hurricanes, what is that data like? How do you gather it? And how are you using it?
1: The purpose of our program is to measure surface wind speeds. We take out ruggedized weather stations that are designed to withstand up to 200 mile per hour winds, and we deploy them right where the highest winds are expected to arrive. And we measure wind in you know three different directions at a very high resolution, and that ultimately allows us to characterize the structure of these damaging winds. And that's important because the the nature of the turbulence affects the loads that act on buildings. And so we're able to make strong inferences about if we're gonna simulate that environment, for example, in our wind tunnel here at the University of Florida, um, we can use that information to help improve those simulations so that we're doing additional testing. The data are also used for post-dome damage assessments. Uh, This is one of the, the, probably the hardest problems. You know, hurricanes, these extreme events, make it very difficult for people to actually go out and observe what's going on. Yet, you know, engineers and meteorologists are called immediately back in to tell us what happened. And so providing these types of measurements gives us a, a very clear line of sight on what the wind field intensity was at that location so that we can evaluate if the building stock you know, performed adequately. And as often as the case, what we do see is a lot of damage at well below design wind speeds. And that's important because it allows the engineering teams to pinpoint, you know, what are the links in civil infrastructure that ultimately, you know, cause systemic failures. So, you know, those are some of the ways that we use the data. We also provide it um, to operational users. Um, It's fairly common to see when the National Hurricane Center is monitoring decaying weather conditions at landfall, they'll report out on measurements we're taking. And in turn, this information is uh, shared with emergency managers, both at the state and local level, um, who are ultimately figuring out, you know, when can they get their people back in. So it's, it's really, it's a wonderful community of people, both on the research and operational side, sharing each information and supporting each other. That, by far, is probably the part I love the most about being in this role, is interacting with all these people that are so passionate about doing the best they can to take care of you know, the affected community. And I take a lot of pride that I've, I'm part of that community and I can contribute to it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit more about that wind tunnel. It's called the terraformer and it's quite central to your work. Can you tell us more about what it is and what it actually can do?
1: So in addition to our field work, we do a lot of work in our on in our laboratory. Um, we, for example, do physical testing where we actually destroy systems to see how they perform. And then, you know, we uh, study the underlying engineering, you know, that that led to their design. We also operate a large, what's called a boundary layer wind tunnel. And the purpose of the wind tunnel is to simulate at a, at a reduced geometric scale, the actual atmospheric boundary layer. So you can imagine if you went outside and you know you felt the wind on your face and it's changing in different directions. Well, that's a that's a product of the fact that the wind is moving through trees and buildings to get to you. And so we actually, in this tunnel, we can simulate the earth's landscape over a very far extent. And the terraformer is is one component of the wind tunnel that allows us to dial up any type of terrain at a specified geometric scale. So if you came to me and said, I need to run an experiment at a 1 to 100 scale in marine conditions or a 1 to 10 scale in suburban conditions, within 90 seconds, we can reconfigure uh, the floor of the wind tunnel. We we change, there there are over over 1,100 individual roughness elements that we can raise and lower and twist. To give us exactly the type of condition that we'd expect, and so the Terraformer allows for high throughput testing in different types of uh, terrain environments uh, to evaluate loads or evaluate how you know buildings might move uh, elastically is how that's referred to uh, in the wind, among other you know applications.
0: How large is it?
1: The wind tunnel is quite large. It's, it's one of the largest uh, uh, in the world, actually, for this type of application. Nominally at the test section, it's 20 feet wide by about 10 feet tall. And it's powered by eight um, large, what are called, vane axial fans. And it's an open circuit wind tunnel because it's so large. And also uh, the tunnel at, in length, I think, is about 125 feet. So it's a pretty substantial uh, piece of equipment uh, to operate. In fact, because it's so large and we built so much sophistication into the equipment we use to control the flows in it, um, it actually became a National Science Foundation um, user facility uh, back in around 2015. So anybody in the United States, you know, that's an academic that wants to use the one tunnel can work the National Science Foundation to come to our lab. So we have people coming there all the time to, you know, exploit its unique capabilities and its size.
0: Fantastic. So it sounds like this really does help guide you when you're looking at building an infrastructure safety and the guidelines or recommendations that you would make. Yeah, that's,
1: that's what we're shooting for. I, I would say we're even, I think our aspirations go uh, further than that. I mean, ultimately, we're trying to create a test bed that allows people to be as creative as possible about exploring these issues. So, I, you know, I wouldn't say that the structural engineer is the, you know, the target audience. It goes way beyond that. You know, we work with meteorologists. We've worked with people um, in other fields looking at different types of technology deployment for sensing and so on. I think that's really, I mean, if you really had to distill down what we do at the University of Florida, I think it's trying to push the envelope. The facility, it's, although it probably could operate with the speed and productivity of a commercial facility, that's not, that's, not, that's not the intent. The intent is to allow people to come in and try You know, wild new ideas that potentially could be transformative or ultimately lead to you know better solutions in an engineering context.
0: And, and to your earlier point, this really is a community, if you will, of people interacting and coming up with solutions and trying things out. Despite the improvements we're seeing in building codes and the like, we are still seeing increasing damage to buildings. So with all of that in mind, what are the implications that you see for the future? Yeah,
1: this is, I think, you know, one of many lenses when you think about society and how it operates um, that tells us um, a lot about you know, how the U.S. infrastructure will change over time. Because ultimately, you know, we're looking at buildings that might have existed 50, 100 years and are expected to be around for another 100 years or so. And uh, the implication is that actually, you know, in solving the, the hurricane problem, we have to actually understand how buildings perform in day-to-day weather. So there's, a, I think it, it's a good platform to sort of study the holistic performance of buildings. And if you want to sort of step out to more of a macro scale, when you think about how communities respond to events, you know, that's the thing about a natural disaster or some other type of exogenous shock to a community. Time speeds up and all the things, all the bad things that might happen to that community, you know, over over 20 years might happen in three months. And so there's a real opportunity to, I think, self-reflect on, you know, how resilient communities are, you know, in the face of, in the face of these events and specifically to places like Florida, which has a lot of coastline and, you know, I think upwards of a thousand people a day moving into the state. It's an opportunity to think long-term. You know, I, I have real concerns about what, of, you know, what the state of evacuation will look like in 50 to 100 years in a crowded place like Southeast Florida, where people can't build. I mean, we're going to be forced to think about, you know, the function of buildings, particularly, you know, sheltering in place in areas that don't flood, you know, more, more so than we've ever thought about that before. So, you know, these events really, I think, positively influence, um, you know, design engineering thinking around what we're going to do. Um, And, you know, ultimately, this is a a silver lining, I guess, to the problem. You know, it forces us to think about building better communities, right, to stand up to these events.
0: Forrest, thank you for the work that you're doing and that of the other researchers that you partner with. It was great to have you as our guest on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us for an episode of From Florida, where we share the stories of faculty, researchers, students, and administrators whose thought leadership is moving our state, our nation, and our world forward. I'm your host, Nikki Brown, and I hope you'll return for our next story of innovation from Florida.